asked if he could help with the illustration today. So come on up here, James. He's going to give me a hand. And just uh, I need you to stand right here in the front, in front of these bags, but face that way. Step down one step real quick for you. And face that way, all right? Face that way for a second. All right, so what we're going to do in just a second is we're going to let you try to guess which bag holds the prize, okay? All the other bags are relatively empty. they got a weight in the bottom. You can't have those weights. That just hold the bag in place so they didn't blow over or fall over. But I'm going to give you a chance to pick out of seven bags, only one bag, okay? So I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, drop it into the bag, something in the bag there, but I'm going to have you uh, guess. And so I'm going to have you stand. You can't touch. You can't look inside the bag, but you just guess which bag you want, all right? So turn around. Just stand there. Turn around, all right? And I need you to just think about that for a minute, okay? Just look at those bags. They're all the same except this one actually tore when I was putting them up there, but they're, they're pretty much all identical except numbered different numbers, okay? So turn around here for a second face the crowd. All right, if you go uh, about picking one of those bags, what's your strategy there? Pick the one that looks like something's been over there, okay? That's a good strategy, all right? What else? Any other, um, when it comes to guessing and trying to uh, pick something, what other strategies do you employ when it comes to this, like, random stuff? Just pick, just randomly pick one? Okay, randomly pick one, all right? Well, I'm going to give you a little help here, okay? So let's see if this audience, um, step over here so they can see the numbers. Um, let's, let's see if the, if the audience allows you to provide you any help, okay? So... Uh, just, would y'all like to help him out? Be honest. Uh, what do you guys think? Which number is it in? Seven. Where, I heard seven. I heard, what number did you say? Four. All right. What did you hear mostly? Do it again for him. More sevens. Okay. All right. So seven seems like, like they're all in sync here. They seem like they know what's going on. All right. Um, Doug, where's Doug? Doug, come on up here for a second. All right. Stand here by my band, James. What, what do you recommend number that he picks? I think you should go with number two. <laughs> All right. Uh, tell me, I mean, you make your best, he's a lawyer, make your best <laughs> argument. You can tell him anything you want, what really happened, everything. Tell him why he should pick number two. I think you should pick, I'm a three-time bag picking champion. <laughs> I think you should pick number two. Number two is good. Right. It right. looks like it's been messed with a little bit. But tell him even more. Why do you feel so confident in number two? How did you find out number two was the one? Because you told me. I told, I told him number two was the one it was in. Yeah, he told me to pick number two. All right, so, so, so Doug's telling you two, and he's got pretty good credibility to tell you number two. You have some other voices here that are saying seven. So, James, what are you going to pick? Two. He's going to pick number two. Hold on, Doug, stay here. Do you think he chose wisely? All right, check it out. Reach in there and see if he's, look underneath. Yeah. <laughs> You're wrong. You know what? I was wrong, actually. <laughs> I, thought, uh, I thought two, three was two. Go ahead and give him those. All right. What do you have there? Two Chick-fil-A gift cards, all right? If that would have worked properly, this would have been bag number two, all right? These were just the uh, empty papers from the gift cards, all right? So that's, that was to throw you guys off. All right. Kind of blew my illustration there. 
But let's pretend it was in two, all right, as we uh, talk about today's passage. So think back to the way this illustration should work as we're working through the scripture today, all right? I'm going to refer back to it the correct way, not the incorrect way. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read it in verse 19 through 25. 19 through 25. So we've been tracking in Mark for quite a while now, and uh, today's passage kind of was the end of last week's passage, but really this passage is so rich and so great, it needed to be a separate week. And so we're going to look at this passage today. Verse 19. And when evening came, they, that's Jesus and the disciples, went out of the city, that's Jerusalem. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. And we'll look at this passage. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray you'll open our hearts to the truth of this. God, we pray that you will help us to uh, rightly divide, as your scripture says, the word of truth, that we will uh, correctly interpret this in the context it was given and in the understanding you give us through your word. And God, I pray that uh, through um, our, our study this morning that we will have a greater view of who you are and your power and your authority over all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me review a little bit where we've been in chapter 11 to catch us up to speed. All right, in chapter 11, uh, we have Jesus' final week. Uh, He's going to, at the end of this week, he's going to uh, die, be crucified, and raise again from the dead. And so this is the final week. This is the Passion Week. And so during the last couple days, what's happened was Jesus, you remember if you were here a few weeks ago, we had the graph of going up the mountain. He goes up the Jericho Road. He enters into Jerusalem. Um, This Palm Sunday, Roy spoke on that week. It's Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. He is received as a conquering king. And he walks into the temple. He looks around. He leaves. He walks a couple miles, goes to a city called Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, more than likely spent the night with them. And then he comes back to Jerusalem. On the way back into Jerusalem, he sees this fig tree. And it looks, if you were here last week, the fig tree looked promising from a distance, all right? He, the scripture tells us that Jesus was hungry, his disciples were hungry. Here was a fig tree that uncharacteristically was ripened possibly before it was even seasoned. We we're still like a month away from when figs should be on a fig tree. And it looks great, and so the disciples are excited. Of course, Jesus knows what's going on. They get close and realize that it gave the appearance of being fruitful, but actually... There was nothing on it, no fruit at all. Jesus is giving a very good object lesson here, an incredible object object lesson. So Jesus curses the tree, and he says, may you never bear fruit again. And then he heads into Jerusalem. And when he gets into Jerusalem, what we refer to as cleansing the temple, he begins to run out the money changers. He is uh, furious that the house of prayer, a house for the nations to come and worship in, has been turned into nothing more than a glorified stockyard 
in the, in the name of selling these animals for sacrifices. It's mess. It's chaotic. And, and the main thing that I believe Jesus was getting at there was the area of the temple where all of this, this commerce was being set up and happening was in the area, the only area where the Gentiles could come and pray. This was the area where they were invited to come and to meet God and get to know God. And so uh, verse 17, it says, is, this not, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so Jesus says, here's the purpose. Israel, your purpose was to be a light to the nations, yet you've turned inward, and it's just all about you. And in fact, you hate the Gentiles, you despise the Gentiles, and the very area that I've given them to come and meet me and get to know me, you've turned into this thing that is just abhorrent to me. It's, it's, it's blasphemous to me. And so Jesus uses the illustration of the tree as an illustration of the temple. That the tree that appeared to be fruitful, but in reality was fruitless. The Jews who had this temple, and they went through the religious activity week after week, offering sacrifices. They went through the motions. There appeared to be fruitfulness about their lives, but in reality, there was nothing true going on. No true worship. No true inter- uh, praying to God and seeking God because it was they'd missed what they were called to do. And so God is not happy with just religious motions and going through and the hypocrisy. We talked about that a great deal last week. And that's what was happening. And so Jesus basically... The cursing of the fig tree was basically saying, this temple, it's all going away. At the end of this week, everything that happens in this temple is history. Now, the temple wouldn't literally be destroyed until 70 AD, but everything was going to be obsolete at the end of the week when Jesus rose again. No more sacrifices. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifices. And God was going to bring judgment upon Israel, and he was going to bring judgment upon the temple And so verse 20, now you see they've returned back to Bethany, and then they're headed back to Jerusalem again in the next morning. In verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots, and hopefully Peter here in his response isn't surprised by that, although it appears like he is. He remembers what he said, uh, Jesus has said, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, right? You would think Peter by now would have arrived at the conclusion that what Jesus says always happens, right? I mean, have we not seen this again and again and again with the disciples that they question Jesus and they really are surprised by the authority and the power that he has? And hopefully that's not the case here, but Jesus takes Peter and the curiosity and the situation and he turns this into another teachable moment to demonstrate the power of faith and the power of prayer. And in verse 22, he says, Jesus says to them, have faith in God. So he says, have faith in God. Peter's, wow, look, Jesus, what you said happens. And his response is, have faith in God. What does it mean to have faith in God, okay? Most of you, I would say the vast majority of you sitting here would say that you have faith in God because you probably wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't. At a minimum, you believe that God exists, okay? You believe that there is a creator God and that you didn't just arrive on this planet through some meaningless, physical, scientific means of cause and effect, 
and you just randomly arrived here and your existence is just purely happenstance and chance. Uh, Believing that God exists should be fairly obvious to human beings, right? It should be. Uh, And maybe you're saying, how so? Tell me. I want to know that. Well, God's existence is demonstrated in his creation. It's also demonstrated in the human conscience. It's demonstrated through God's revelation of himself. Most importantly, through Jesus Christ, who walked on this earth, did the incredible things that we've talked about, rose from the dead, being the greatest miracle of all, and then finally, his revelation that he gives us in his word, which if you've read this word, you know there's something amazing and supernatural about it. It's not just a book that we've kept throughout the history of the world. It's something incredible. But regardless of how obvious that seems, God still says you need faith. God's design and his plan required that you have faith. And that distinguishes between those who belong to him and those who don't belong to him. And while it appears to those of us who know God that the proof is obvious, for those who are here and you're not a believer, you're not convinced because you don't have faith. And we believe that faith is a gift from God, as Scripture teaches. And God isn't going to force faith upon you. He's not going to do that. I encourage you, if you find yourself today sitting here and doubting God's existence or questioning Jesus in the Bible, that you begin to express those concerns to God himself. Talk to God about that. God, give me faith. Give me faith. And so I'm going to give you a definition of faith. There's a definition of faith in Hebrews, which is great. But I want to give you a real practical definition of faith. Faith is trusting or believing God at his word. Trust is believe, or Faith is trusting or taking God at his word. And faith isn't, as I've mentioned the, these, these evidences, it's not blind, like some critics might suggest. But it's a response, again, to evidence. Again, it's based on real events that can be investigated, which were recorded in history. It's based upon the reality that we exist. If you're sitting here today, you exist, and I don't know about you, but I don't think that anything that I see around me just occurred by just spontaneous combustion, right? All right? I don't think that any, we would ever think that this iPad or this Bible or this podium just arrived here out of just random chance, out of nothing, yet there are many people and maybe some in this room who feel that way, that you just, you know, I, I just popped into existence from nothing. But faith isn't based upon that, faith in God, and just random faith in boy, I came from zero, but you know and I know in our heart of hearts that that can't be true. And it's also based upon the evidence that all cultures of all times have had some kind of moral law, some kind of moral code that dictates their behavior. And then finally, it's based upon an innate innate human longing for something greater than ourselves. So these are all things that you can that you can seek and pursue and look at. It's not just 
some feeling that James would have like, okay, let me try to, try to just figure this out on my own. We'll get back to that. And so it's not just some vague feeling that, that you know, that I'm, I'm arrived, or it's not just some vague feeling that there's this deity, this higher power, but now he's just kind of let me just kind of drift and do whatever I want to do, or this world just happened the way that it is going to happen. That's called being a deist. But if it's true that God exists, his scripture says, his revelation says that he rewards those who seek him. And so we believe scripture teaches, and through God's revelation of himself, that he says that he's a personal creator God who desires to have an exalted position in your life and in my life. He desires to have an exalted position in our lives. So he knows us. He loves us. I know him. I love him. And I have a, an internal relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. And so this belief in God, maybe you've made it to that point, there's a God, but you haven't reached the point where you know that there's this all-powerful, all-knowing God that exists and that I can trust that his revelation of himself is trustworthy and believable. And when he says something, I can believe it. And I put it to the test. But at the end of the day, there's just something that's beyond description that I just, I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt because God has spoken. He's revealed himself that it's true. And so Jesus says, have faith in God. Do you have faith in God? Do you have faith in God? And then verse 23, if you believe that God exists, that he is who he says he is, then verse 23 doesn't seem that amazing because the God who speaks the universe into existence, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken down and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So two options here, two options. And then we'll get to the controversial part of the verse he says whoever says to this mountain i'm going to point this out this is probably for maybe the handful of bible students who really like to dig in here two options for what this mountain could be it makes a big difference how you approach this passage the first is the temple mount you know we just talked about that the last few weeks jesus is all focused in on the temple which sits on a mount okay and so if he's referring to the temple mount there then it, this this interpretation goes one direction I don't think that's the case here, and the reason why is because there's many other times throughout the gospel where Jesus gives a similar encouragement, just believe, just trust, have faith in God, and these miraculous things can happen, like the mountain moving. And so I, I don't think that's the context here, even though it might seem to be. And if you go that way, you go in a completely different direction. I think he's referring to the Mount of Olives. He, he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's saying, if you stay to this mountain, be moved and thrown in the sea, it's going to happen. Now, one thing to, to be aware of here is Jesus was speaking figuratively mountain, all right? Just like in our time, it was a common colloquialism of their day that a mountain was a metaphor uh, signifying a seemingly impossible task, all right? So just like us, like, you know, I need that mountain moved. That's, that's huge. Uh, that's the same thing that was in their day, and, and we got it from them probably, that is strong and immovable, a problem which stands in our way. But here, here's what I want to be careful of, because we do understand this to be figurative and not literal. A literal mountain, God, Jesus isn't saying just, um, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, which is called the mountain state, okay? I've told you my 
uh, as a kid over the years, like trying to walk on water. I don't know if you remember that. You know, Jesus said, walk on water. I can walk on water, and I can do these things. All right, I tried to move a mountain here and there. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm like, Jesus, you said, if I just believe enough, it's going to happen. All right, move. All right, I, I was, we didn't have a TV growing up, all right? So this is how I entertain myself. And, and, and so the mountain didn't budge, okay? And I, and I really, really worked up some pretty strong belief there. He's not referring to a, a literal mountain, but even though he's not, this is still very radical in nature, okay? It's very radical in nature. He says, he says if you believe this problem, this, this challenge, this situation that's sitting in your path, if you believe and have faith and don't doubt, it's going to be done for you. God is willing to, by grace, to unleash great power upon his people is what Jesus says. He's willing to unleash great power upon his people. And so Jesus is saying great difficulties can be removed when a person has faith. He's saying that faith, the faith of God's people is the channel through which God chooses to manifest his glory. He manifests his glory through the faith of his people. Don't miss that. That's, that's incredible. It's radical. And oftentimes, I'll talk about this in a minute, we forget this. And so, if we have little faith, little glory is seen through us. If we have little faith, little glory is seen through us. But as I said, this is a very controversial verse because of this reason. We know that many people have taken this, many denominations have taken this, and distorted this verse and turned it into just it's God in a, in a genie bottle, right? I just want something. Jesus said, if I just want something bad enough and I believe and have faith, then I just rub that genie bottle and boom, God's going to do that for me. It's, and, and basically, they're saying it's all, it's all about me, right? It's what I want. If I see something and I want it, you know, I'm just going to believe and trust and pray to God and God's going to provide that for me. That's the common belief of the culture and it's a common belief of a lot of churches and a lot of Christians. I have some friends who opened a store, and they just really have a, a, a big heart for evangelism. And they were telling me that on the business cards and inside the store, they printed up, we offer free spiritual advice, free spiritual advice. And they were so excited because they were going to be able to share the gospel with people. They had lined up a person who would take those calls and to walk somebody through, pray with them, and share with them Jesus. And they waited and waited, and finally uh, they received a call. And the person who was receiving the call, I called them and said, hey, um, I've got my first call, and, and the person's coming to see me. Well, the person showed up to see them and meet with them, and the first question they asked, they said, okay, do you use a crystal ball or do you use tarot cards, all right? And, and, and see, that's the belief of our, of our society. Like, if I want spiritual help, then show me what God can do for me or this supernatural force or this high power can do for me, Okay. And so people take this verse and they twist it around and they turn it in. I want what I want, when I want it, and God should provide that for me. And then they believe that, you know, if I, just, if I just work up enough faith, if I just believe enough to really put, you know, enough mental power into choosing, then I will figure this out. I will, I will, I will, I will come to the right conclusion. You know, just like, which one is it? I believe, I believe, I believe it's one. I believe it's one. And if my illustration had worked correctly, Doug knew the answer, or he thought he did. Uh, Doug knew the answer. And so the point was going to be Doug 
is reliable. You pay, he, James ultimately trusted Doug. He knew Doug. He knew Doug's in this church. Even though everybody else said one thing, Doug was convincing. He said, you know, I, John told me, it's, it's this one. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not the quality or size of your faith that matters. It's the God that you put your faith and trust in. The object of the faith is what matters. And so let's be careful that we don't turn this into, okay, I'm in crisis, God, you said this, boom, I'm believing it, and provide that for me. Just another, another illustration growing up. Um, there was a guy in our church, his name was Sam Hilton. Man, just one of the, the most supportive guys that you'll ever meet. And his son was a year behind me in school. Uh, just a big fan of our, our, our basketball team and our soccer team. He cheered, uh, you know, every game. It was, was very vocal and encouraging. But Sam uh, got cancer. And um, we began as a church to really pray for him, intercede for him, seek God for him. And there was times in that process where it appeared like maybe Sam was going to have healing. But Sam, ultimately, he died about a year after he was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember thinking, God, did I just not believe enough? Did I not just have enough faith that, that Sam would be healed? I mean, I prayed really hard. I don't know how I could pray any harder and how, how I could pray any more. But Sam wasn't healed, and many other people were praying as well. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, Every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed, is a monument to a petition that was not granted. Every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed, is a monument to a petition that was not granted. So before we adopt a prayer philosophy that requires God to provide all our wants, a philosophy which attempts to hold God hostage by thinking, if I can just work up enough faith, then he's going to be required to do things the way I want. We need to adjust our thinking and consider what God, the full counsel of God, and what God's point here is, what Jesus' point here is, being faith in God. And the object is God, not in our working up, our belief. And so, three things. Three things. We must acknowledge God's sovereignty and humbly seek first his kingdom. We must acknowledge God's sovereignty and humbly seek first his kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. So, question for you. Question for me. What are we praying for? What kind of things are most of your prayers revolving around? Honestly, all right, answer that in your mind right now. What do your prayers revolve around? Are they kingdom-centered prayers where it's about God and his glory? Or is it, as James said in four, chapter 4, he says, you don't have because you don't ask, but when you do ask and you don't receive, it's because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your passions. You see it? Your passions. And most of our prayers fall into that category, don't they? God Fulfill my passions. And sometimes, and we talked a lot about self-deception last week, but sometimes we'll even deceive ourselves to think, oh, this is really for the kingdom, but in reality, it's just mostly about us. It's about what we want. And so, Scripture is teaching us when we ask for things that are consistent with and inside God's will, he delivers 
what you ask. That's what he's teaching us today. And God finds great delight in bringing his kingdom to earth. He tells us that. He says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he finds great delight in fulfilling the true needs of his children. Just like a father, I, I love to meet my children's needs. And that's what God desires. And so I think if you're like me and you're a student of the Bible, sometimes you can begin to think, you know, prayer, you know, I, I, I don't really, I, God's going to do what he's going to do. And, I, you know, do I need, really need to pray that hard? You know, I, I've asked once, I'm just going to leave it. And God wants us, when it comes to kingdom prayers and what he's doing in this world or how it's going to bring glory to him, he wants us to pray in faith and believe in faith. Two guys uh, from history, from the 1800s. You've probably heard at least one of their names. Charles Spurgeon and the other guy, George Mueller. They, they were buddies. They knew each other. They were both from England. And uh, Spurgeon was known as a, a, just an incredible preacher. I mean, he was the pastor of a megachurch before people knew what megachurches were. I mean, this guy had thousands of people in his congregation. George Mueller, uh, if you, yeah, he ran an, an orphanage, orphanages in London, and he's known for just incredible faith. Well, I begin to think, like, did these two guys ever meet up? Did they know each other? You know, what was their interactions like? And I came across this incredible story because it shows how God works his kingdom work through his people. Let me read this for you. The great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, went to Bristol, Bristol, hoping to collect 300 pounds, which in those days was a huge amount of money, for London's homeless children. At the end of the week of meetings, many lives had been changed and his financial goal had been reached. That night, as he bowed in prayer, Spurgeon was clearly prompted to give the money to a co-laborer of Christ named George Mueller. Oh no, Lord, Spurgeon cried. I need it for our dear orphans. Yet Spurgeon couldn't shake the idea that God wanted him to part with it. Only when he said, yes, Lord, I will, could he find rest. With great peace, he made his way the next morning to Mueller's orphanage and found the great man of, of prayer on his knees. The famous minister placed his hands on Mueller's shoulder and said, George, God has told me to give you 300 pounds that I collected. Oh, dear brother, exclaimed Mueller, I've just been asking him for exactly that amount. The two servants of the Lord wept and rejoiced together. When Spurgeon returned to London, he found an envelope on his desk containing more than the 300 pounds. The Lord had returned the 300 pounds he had obediently give, given to George Mueller. That's awesome. I love that because it shows the mysterious way in which God works to answer prayer. And God doesn't drop 300 pounds or $3,000 from the sky. He uses his servants. He uses us to accomplish those things. And so prayer really, truly makes things happen. And as I said, I'm, I'm guilty oftentimes of saying, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, what difference does it really make if I pray? I, I'm guilty of sometimes thinking about things where I really feel like God wants me to pray in this regard, but I'm like, God, you're going to do it if it's going to happen. If our understanding, listen to this, if our understanding of God's sovereignty leads us to pray less, then we need to rethink our understanding of God's sovereignty. You read that again. 
if our understanding of God's sovereignty, and what I mean by that is his control of the universe, that he's the eternal, all-powerful king, if that leads us to pray less, we need to rethink our view of God's sovereignty. There are events that will not happen unless we pray for them. Do you hear that? There's events that will not happen unless we pray for them. Sam Storm puts it well. He says this, We must never presume God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant us only by the means of prayer. Let me say that one again. Wrap your mind around that. We must never presume God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he's ordained to grant us by means of prayer. So, what are you praying? What are you asking for? Look what he says, 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it, and it will be yours. Have faith in God. Ask. So, what's your prayers? Are they me-centered prayers to consume upon your passion? Or are they prayers for God's kingdom? God, I'm asking you in faith. I believe that you can do this. And we acknowledge that God is all wise. We acknowledge his sovereignty. But we pray in faith and we believe in faith. That leads to the second thing. We must acknowledge the limitations of our understanding. We must acknowledge the limitations of our understanding. Did you know at 9-11, there were numerous people who should have been in the building, should have been in the Twin Towers, and should have died, but I read that one woman survived because her alarm clock didn't go off. Another was delayed because of an accident on the New Jersey Turnpike. One fellow missed his bus. One person spilled food all over her clothing and had to take the time to change, which delayed her from getting there. One person's car wouldn't start. A mother had a child who was throwing up, or I'm sorry, throwing a fit and, and making a bit, causing a lot of trouble, and so she wasn't able to get to work in time. Another guy had a new pair of shoes, and he got a bad blister on his foot, so he stopped by the drugstore to buy a Band-Aid, and he's alive today because of that. All right, put yourself in, think about your inconveniences lately, that flat tire, that person who delayed you, this or that situation. Probably a lot of times in those moments, we're praying, God, please take care of this. Please fix this. Please don't let this happen. God, please let my route to work today to be smooth. Just move the traffic, part the traffic away from me so I can just cruise through Tallahassee, right, and get to where I'm going. We, those are the type of prayers we pray because, again, they're all about us, right? Like, this is better for me. And so we're limited. And all those people who, if they had been Christians, they would have prayed and asked God to make, like, this uh, be smooth and don't allow any inconveniences to their life. But the very inconveniences they encountered were the things that saved their life. In our limited knowledge and our limited wisdom, we may not want what God knows is best for his glory and our good. True? We may not know. When God doesn't miraculously heal Sam Hilton, did I fail? Did I just not work up enough faith? Does God still love me? Is he listening to me? All these things that are in our minds at those times. But we must look at Jesus Christ. The love of God, how much is it shown through what Jesus did for us? His love was so strong that he sent Jesus 
to die and take the punishment that we deserve. So instead of questioning the goodness of God at those moments, we must take God at his word. That's faith. Take God at his word. God, you know this was what I prefer, and this is what feels right and seems right, and I don't see any way possible that that way that you're going can bring you glory and bring me good. But God, I'm trusting you at your word. That's faith. I'm trusting you at your word. I'm, I'm believing, I'm praying, I'm seeking, I'm, I'm fervently asking. And as Jesus told in another parable, I mean, I'm going back and back again and again asking. But at the end of the day, I realize that, God, you're smarter than me. You're all wise. And I don't know what you're saving me from or what you're doing for your kingdom because this isn't happening the way that I hope it would happen. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward God, toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we will have the requests that we have asked of him. So Jesus promises to provide whatever we ask in prayer. If it rests on the understanding that we pray with his priorities in mind, with his godly priorities, with his will in mind. I think back to chapter 1 of Mark, back in the early, early days, think back about a year ago, a leper approached Jesus and he told Jesus, he said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And, and that's how faith works. God, I know you can do this if it's in your plan. And from my limited understanding, it feels like it should be in your plan, but you're God and I'm not. So let's don't treat God and our prayers like emergency measures that we just, when something goes bad or goes wrong, we like run to God. That's not what God intends at all. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. And so within the relationship, just like Jesus, our model, God, I can only do what you do. I can't do nothing by myself. This was Jesus' words in John, the Gospel of John. I can do nothing in my own. Can Jesus really do nothing of his own? He says, only what I see God's doing. I, what God, your will is, that's what I'm going to do. And so, do we not need to remix our prayers? Think about it. I mean, your prayers that you're, you're praying and I'm praying so many times are just just the th same things we pray every single day and we just go through the motions and God says I hate your religious show I hate you going through the motions what's the motivation where's the heart are you seeking me for things that move my kingdom for my glory today in our elder meeting at 1:30, our staff is going to be sharing with with the elders some of the things we feel like God's put on our heart for Grace Church in 2020 and it's it's pretty awesome that many of us really truly have some things that are way beyond our ability to pull off and one of the key things that we're we're talking about today requires great prayer in fact mitch came up with a 29-day prayer list to give to our leadership pray for 29 straight days for this and see if God's leading or not. You see, when we pray for God, bless the food, which we're glad we have food, right? God, uh, give me safety today. God, um, you know, bless Aunt Sue out in Washington. When we're praying 
those type of prayers, what kind of kingdom value are we praying for? What kind of kingdom ministry are we praying for? But when you pray for Aunt Sue that God will draw her back to her, yourself, God, help her to, through my words and through others who encounter her, that she will see the glorious salvation that God offers in Christ. It takes time. It takes effort, right? It, we have to put a little more thought into just, than just spitting out the rope prayers. We begin to step back and say, God, prayer is so important that I'm going to actually prioritize time for it. And I'm going to take time to really, really think about what I'm saying. And invest in your kingdom and believe. And then the final one. We must acknowledge that we cannot be right with God if we aren't right with others. Look at verse 25. It says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. So Jesus says that faith and a willingness to forgive, these are conditions for effective prayer. Faith and your willingness to forgive others. As Paul Tripp likes to say, you're horizontal and you're vertical, right? Horizontal and vertical with God, with others, have to be in sync there. And Jesus makes that point. He says, you've got to consider how you're living with your fellow believer. Galatians 5, 6 tells us that faith works by love. And so if we truly have faith in God and we're truly seeking first his kingdom, I will also have love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who have offended me and hurt me. Because Jesus forgave much for us. How can we not forgive others? You know the sad thing? I don't know this. I'm just guessing it's true, and it probably is. In this room right here, right now, some of you are going to go home and pray, and maybe even pray with more focus, but you're still unwilling to forgive somebody in this room or in this church. And not my words, but Jesus' words. God's not going to honor that prayer. In fact, take it a step further, Peter tells us, that husbands, if you're not honoring your wives, treating them with respect and dignity, God's not going to listen to your prayer. You see, it matters, these relationships to God, the horizontal and the vertical. So, are you willing to forgive, let go of that hurt that's been done against you? Maybe you're thinking, Pastor John, you have no idea what this person has done. And you also have no idea that they have no desire to reconcile. I mean, you just don't know the situation. Jesus says, let go of it. Forgive it. And you probably have to do that again and again and again, right? Uh, a lot of times we pray, God, I just forgive. I, I just let go of that. And if it is somebody within your sphere who's, who, who is it's possible to go to them, and you have not done that, you need to do that. Jesus said that in another place. He said, if you go and lay your, your gift on the altar and you remember you have something against a brother or sister, you go to them and make it right and then come back and give me the, the sacrifice. And so very practically, is there bitterness in your life toward another believer? Are you angry toward another believer? Are you in your mind, that real that's going on in your mind, are you thinking about revenge or I hope they get what they deserve, I hope they get what they gave me are you doing that? God says, I don't honor that. I don't honor that. So God's sovereign. 
And he says, pray, believe, trust. He's in control, but seek first his kingdom. Your prayers should be God-centered, seeking his kingdom. And he says, I'm going to answer that. I'm going I'm I'm to work in a way that you can't even fathom. And if the prayer to answer to prayer doesn't turn out to be exactly the way that we prayed or hoped, we know that God's understanding is a lot greater than ours. And we're going to trust him even in that. And then finally and practically, before you start to pray those prayers, if there's somebody you need to forgive, you need to do that. You need to go to them. Talk to them. Attempt to make it right. And God says, I'll honor that. Don't we have an amazing, loving Father who desires to meet our needs, to provide us encouragement we need to carry on the fight, keep running the race. We need that. And God promises to give us everything we need in order to do that. Prayer, what, what, a, what, what an amazing, amazing gift. But yet, how little we use it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth. And God, we we base our belief in your truth based upon you and your character and who you are. And God, the more we grow in our understanding of you, the stronger our faith will be. And God, I pray that those who really don't see the benefit of seeking you every day to to being with you in a relationship every day and talking to you and seeking your will, God, may today be a wake-up call that their life really doesn't matter for a whole lot if they're not on the same page as you living for your glory and your kingdom, God. We thank you for your incredible grace because we know every one of us so easy can get sidetracked and we can practically have very little faith even though we can talk a big talk. And God, I pray that you will help us to more and more walk in the spirit and God confess our sins and our struggles and our weaknesses and those things that are in our path right now that continually bring us down and cause us not to keep our eyes upon you God may those things be destroyed by faith in you and God may we walk worthy of the calling that you've given us God I pray that our prayers will be centered upon the kingdom and your glory And God, we trust your word and believe your word that all these things will be added to us. That you'll give us what we need to fulfill your your will. In Jesus' name we pray.